1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34, we're in the resurrection chapter. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as is his wont, is um, seeking to make an argument for the resurrection. And he's already begun by letting them know that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then everything is useless. That if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. And he said, you know, why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Um, actually, he says that in this passage right here. But uh, this first verse is a good example of why um, Scripture has always been considered so sacred that through the years, in spite of the fact that many editors would like to have just taken this verse out, they left it in. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll look at this verse, okay? Otherwise, he says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, so that's weird, but we'll get to it. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought wild beasts or fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So, um, I am not going back into the context because we've read and reread that. Uh, we're going to just jump into this and understand that this is part of his overall argument. So what do we mean, or what does he mean, by being baptized for the dead? Um, is, you know, are we missing something here? Do we need to follow the Mormon practice? You may not be aware of this, but Mormons who have many divergent ideas from Orthodox Christianity um, do, in fact, baptize for the dead. So a living person will be baptized for a dead person. Um, is that what Paul is advocating? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Let me just begin by saying God doesn't support everything the Bible reports. Let me say that again. God does not support everything the Bible reports. The Bible reports statements from Satan. Bible reports sinful activities on the parts of various individuals throughout history. The Bible reports statements that people made that were outright lies. Uh, the Bible reports that Saul went to the witch of Endor to raise Samuel from the dead to try to get a word from God. Is that what God wants? That's not what God wants, right? So if we misunderstand scripture by just reading it literally and not understanding its context, we won't understand this, okay? Um, first of all, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand a little bit about baptism. Baptism doesn't produce eternal life, okay? Baptism is a symbol and it represents something that has happened inside a saved person, a person who has the Holy Spirit. Um, you receive Christ, you receive the Spirit, and your spirit is immersed and given new birth. And so baptism in, in water is meant to symbolize that, all right? 
It's meant to symbolize a death to our old life and resurrection to a new life, right? In uh, Romans 6, 1 and following, the Apostle Paul says uh, that we are buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk a newness of life. So that's what it's meant to symbolize. Well, you can't symbolize that for somebody that's already died. Faith is what saves and a dead person can't have faith. So what does he mean by saying this? Well, apparently what's going on here is the Corinthians who did a lot of crazy stuff, they, they did and said a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with the teaching that Paul had offered them, which is why we have two huge Corinthian letters and why I've called this teaching uh, on the Corinthian letters God's dysfunctional people because they just were confused in a lot of ways. They were pagans. There was not a whole lot of Jewish influence in Corinth. It was a very secular city. And so they just really didn't know anything about the Bible, God's holy history, any of these things. So they were receiving all of it from Paul. Well, he was there for 18 months and then he left and then the Corinthians started having problems and he sent a letter and then uh, he came back and he visited them and then he sent another letter. So uh, it's a very, very uh, troubled community and we don't want to take one of their practices and make that orthodoxy. Just because Paul mentions this in passing as a part of his argument, as a way to convince them, doesn't mean that he is advocating it. He's not advocating being baptized for the dead. He's demonstrating that the Corinthians are hypocrites. He's saying, so you're saying that there is no resurrection from the dead, and yet you guys are baptizing people for the dead. So what's that supposed to mean? Right? Why are you baptizing people for the dead if the dead don't rise? So he's saying you're not making any sense, okay, essentially. Baptism is symbolic of something that's happened inside a person. And um, the Apostle Paul is not by any means saying, hey, this is what we need to do, or this is a secret practice in the Christian church, or this is the only place that this is mentioned, and we need to understand it in context, right? Um. All right, so the next thing, I, I could go on and on about that, but I don't want to uh, beat a dead horse, so to speak. Um, I think that the principle, um, God does not support everything the Bible reports, will help you in many ways as you study Scripture. Um, and this is just one verse. Um, there's another good principle, and this is not my principle. This is uh, a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics just means the, the art and science of interpreting the Bible. But you always let the passages of Scripture that are clear interpret the passages that are unclear. So if you have some obscure reference or statement, you don't build your, your theology or your doctrine on that. You let the clear teaching and the clear passages define the unclear. Well, we have plenty of clear passages on baptism, and of course, uh, this entire chapter is a clear teaching on the resurrection. So we want to focus on what is clear. All right. So <clears throat> the apostle Paul says, I die daily. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must uh, take up his cross and follow me. And he must do that daily, right? You, you must die to yourself daily, right? Um, he said, Jesus specifically said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that is something that we're to do daily. So um, this idea of taking up the cross has, is often 
uh, misstated or misunderstood as your burden. Well, this is my cross to bear. Right? It's just my burden in life. I just got to bear this. These children are my cross to bear. And that's not what it means. The cross was the instrument of death. So what Jesus is saying is you need to be willing to die to yourself every day. So it's not I deny myself this, that, or that thing. Like, you know, during Lent, you might say, okay, well, no ice cream for me during Lent, right? No coffee for me during Lent. You're denying yourself something. But Jesus wants us to deny self. I need to turn away from self, all right? I need to stop staring at myself in the mirror, stop thinking about myself, stop worrying about myself, stop talking about myself. Um, look at the topic of, you know, various people's conversations. Uh, you're having a conversation with someone and they constantly st steer it back to themselves, to themselves. So that's a serious problem, right? If I'm a Christian person, I'm following Jesus. And so I'm constantly trying to, well, let, I wrote a, a letter to one of our uh, former, one of the former students that I was ministering to here who's incarcerated right now. And he mentioned that he had watched Baylor play uh, last year in the final four. And he seemed to be unaware that Baylor won everything last year. Like Baylor won the NCAA tournament last year. They're number one in the nation last year. And so as a result, Baylor was very public, uh, or their coach, uh, Scott Drew, was very public about their philosophy or the culture that he um, encourages uh, within the team. And he calls it the culture of joy. And if you remember about a year ago when I was talking about this, um, joy is actually not something Scott Drew came up with. It's an acronym. And I mean, I've been a Christian forever. And this was old when I first became a Christian. But joy is what the old preachers used to say. If you want to have joy in your life, you need to have the right priorities. Number one, Jesus. Number two, others. And number three, yourself. Right? So we don't have to be self-loathing any more than we need to be self-loving. We need to be self-forgetful. So to die to myself is to put Jesus first and above all, and then to honor one another above yourselves, as the Apostle Paul says. Um, you know, when I choose to love other people, I am elevating them. I am acting out in their best interest, even if it's not always in my best interest, right? Um, so uh, the really the ultimate passage that teaches this idea is the so-called kenotic passage, and that's a word that comes from the Greek word kenosis, which means emptying, and you'll understand that when I quote this. Um, the Apostle Paul said, have this attitude, or have this mind, literally, it's have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in appearance as a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what I like to say is Jesus took the elevator all the way down to the very bottom floor to the sub-basement, you might say, right? He came and 
he left glory and he became a human being. And that's taking quite a few floors down. And then he was born in poverty. That's taking a few more floors down. And he lived his life loving other people and suffering in behalf of other people. And that's taking the the elevator even a few more floors down. And then he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he wasn't a self-serving person. He served other people. He served us. This is while he was on earth. And then he was even willing to die for us, but not just any death. The apostle Paul died. Um, He was martyred in Rome. Um, And of course, that's a tragedy. But the apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, so he was probably beheaded. Now that's gruesome, I understand, but that's momentary, right? It's over, you know? Does your... Does your brain even perceive anything after it loses contact with the body? You know, we don't know, but if it's anything, it's not, not very long, and then it's over. Crucifixion is agonizing. In fact, we get our English word excruciating, okay? X from crucia, right, from the cross, because it is the ultimate suffering and pain. Jesus took the floor all the way down. He didn't just die for us. He was beaten and he suffered for us. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about dying daily. We're talking about putting self behind us. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. But he's saying if Jesus didn't rise, then that's worthless. See, we're not doing this because we hate ourselves. We're doing this because there's a greater reward. We're not doing this because we're worthless. We're doing this because he is inestimably worthwhile. And we're seeking to live our lives for him. And so whoever Jesus loves and Jesus looks to, then that's what we want to do as well. I am sure there are plenty of things that you don't necessarily want to do or like to do, but are willing to do in order to help someone else, right? And that's what we're talking about. But see, sometimes I have to get over myself in order to get to the point where I'm willing to help someone, right? There was a lady that I encountered out here in front of the church this morning, and uh, I, I thought she was she appeared to be homeless, and uh, she was disheveled and uh, didn't smell very good, and so forth. But she was very sincere, and I said, "Hey, I don't have any money." And I don't just say that if I have money, I actually don't have any money right now. Like I have no cash in my wallet whatsoever. And I usually gauge whether I'm gonna be able to help somebody that asks me for money by whether I have money in my wallet. If I do, then I'm gonna listen to them. If I don't, (laughs) I just assume providentially, this is not what I'm supposed to do because I'm not taking them to an ATM and dragging money out and have them beat me over the head or something, right? I just, yeah, that's one of the, uh, the rules of thumb that I use. If I have money in my wallet, cash that is, then I'll help them. Or, you know, if they're asking for food, then, you know, if I can take them somewhere and buy them food, then I can do that. This lady, all she wanted was a ride. Okay. Um, Well, it wasn't very hard to do because she was actually on my way to the gym, but she's been on the street and, uh, you know, she didn't smell that great. And my truck didn't smell that great after she got out. And in fact, you might say, well, come on, preacher. Well, listen, we're talking, I left the windows down because it didn't smell very good for about half the day, right? So, you know, and and I'm not speaking disparagingly to this lady. If she was here, I wouldn't even be using this story. Um, 
What I'm saying is to help other people, we've got to get over ourselves. And while it was easy to take her to where she wanted to go because it was on the way, I had to pray about that because I don't like having a woman alone in a vehicle with me because I don't think it's wise, okay? She could say anything. What would I be able to do about that? You have to pray through stuff like that. Um, I don't know if I prayed very long or hard. <laughs> I was just mainly trying to be sensitive to the spirit and see whether the Lord wanted me to do that or not. And I was like, oh, I can, you know, I can take her, do what she wanted me to do. But it would have been easier for me to say, no, I, I just really can't do that, okay? And then just jump in my truck and go my way. Sometimes you just, you've got to get over yourself, right? Um, this young man that I uh, went to Grand Prairie to pick up, um, initially, when I got the, the call yesterday, there was a voice message there. And the request was like, can you pick me up at three o'clock? Well, I didn't even want to do it at three o'clock because I know how far away it is. And I know what the traffic can be like. And I like to be here an hour before you guys get here to get set up. But I kept thinking about it and kept praying about it. And it was one of those, get over yourself, Daryl. You can figure this deal out, okay? So then to compound matters, not his fault, my fault, I get there an hour and a half late. So I don't get there until 4.30, which is why I got back here late. But I mention all these things, not to break my arm patting myself on the back, but to say, you do things like this for people all the time. But a lot of times we have to overcome ourselves, right? That's not convenient for me. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. That's why we have to die daily, right? Right? So the Apostle Paul is saying, the reason that I do this is because of this greater reward, because of the resurrection, okay? Um, verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought Wild beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. What does he mean by fighting wild beasts at Ephesus? Well, I'll go into a little detail here. I'll jump into my notes. Um, I've actually been going more quickly than I would have gone um, because I have extensive notes on all of these verses. But let's look at this one. Uh, William Barclay writes this. He quotes his own experience. Every day he is in jeopardy of his life. Something terrible, of which the New Testament has no record, happened to Paul at Ephesus. He refers to it again in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. He says, quote, in Asia, that is in Ephesus, he was in such dire peril that he despaired of life and had the sentence of death passed on him. To this day in Ephesus, there is a building known as Paul's prison. Here, he calls his peril, quote, fighting with wild beasts, unquote. The word he uses is the same one used of a gladiator in the arena. That is the word for fighting. Later legends tell us that he actually did fight in the arena and he was wondrously preserved because the wild beasts would not attack him. But Paul was a Roman citizen and no Roman citizen could be compelled to fight in the arena it is much more likely that he used the phrase as a vivid picture of being threatened by men who were as savage in their desire to take his life as a wild beast must have been. Now that's all from William Barclay's passage. So he's saying that there's something that the New Testament doesn't report that happened to Paul, but it was men who were threatening his life, right? Um, uh, so although it was 
not uncommon for Rome, the, the state of Rome, the government, the Roman government, to punish people by throwing them to hungry beasts. Um, yes, and Christians were thrown to lions in the Colosseum. Maybe you've heard that. Okay, that did actually happen. This would not have been legal in the case of a Roman citizen like Paul. Therefore, he is speaking of the difficult people with which he had to contend at Ephesus. So here's a comment from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and it takes the position that Paul wrote this Corinthian letter uh, from Ephesus. In reading the account Paul's, of, ministry, of Paul's ministry there, which is recorded in Acts 19, we find that the gospel was so well received that he stayed there for two years. So he stayed in Ephesus longer than he stayed in Corinth. Now, he had interaction with Corinth uh, for quite a while afterwards. And, of course, these two letters, as I mentioned earlier, are part of that interaction. And he visited Corinth on a number of occasions. But he stayed in Ephesus for two whole years, and he was very, very successful there. In fact, the Apostle Paul was so successful in Ephesus that it actually started having an economic impact on the city because one of the primary sources of revenue uh, for the city was from idol makers, that they were making little statues, right? Little idols of various goddesses. Well, Ephesus was known as the, uh, the home, if you will, of Artemis, right? The, the Greek Roman goddess Artemis. Uh, and this Artemis would be the, the Greek name. Uh, she was known as Artemis of the Ephesians, and they had a huge temple dedicated to her. And so, you know, it would be like, okay, for instance, if you went to Rome, the city of Rome today, there would probably be all sorts of crucifixes and, uh, you know, various Christ, pieces of Christian art all over the city, especially if you got around the Vatican, right? Because, you know, Christianity has been established there for 2,000 years. Well, imagine a pagan religion that had been established in a city for that long. Of course, they would have, it wasn't just, you know, here's a trinket, here is, you know, some holy water that you can take home with you. These were actual little idols that they prayed to, although I don't know, the way people, you know, people treat saints and crucifixes, they're like little idols, right? So the Apostle Paul uh, had economic impact, and this made the idol makers, uh, this upset the idol makers, we'll put it that way. Um, so one of the, uh, the smiths, right, because they made these idols out of metal, or at least the, the ones they were selling there, uh, this is from Acts 19, 25 through 27. Um, <clears throat> one of the smiths there gathers all the other idol makers together, and he says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, <laughs> duh, they're not. Okay. But see, whether they believe that or not, it's having a very, very serious economic impact on them. They're going to have to find another way to make money, right? Verse 27, and there is danger not only in this trade of ours, and there's danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Long story short, 
they started a riot, right? And the whole city ran together in the, the auditorium that they had there and chanted for hours. They chanted for hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Wow. Um, Paul wanted to go out and address them and talk to them, but his disciples restrained him. They said, no, 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 don't go out there because they thought he was going to get torn apart. Well, uh, there were plenty of times when Paul didn't listen when these things were said, but in this case he did. Well, in fact, I have the, I have the, uh, the passage written here that speaks of, uh, that I can quote. This is verses 28 through 31. <clears throat> when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that would be the other uh, residents of Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Does this not sound like wild beasts? It's exactly what it sounds like to me. So I'm, I'm really kind of amazed that these commentators don't want to refer to what is plainly in Scripture. Okay? You know, these are the people that he was dealing with. So it seems to me this is obviously what he's talking about. Right? Then he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we, we, uh, we die, right? And you might have heard, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Well, <clears throat> Isaiah the prophet spoke these same words 800 years prior to Paul in Isaiah 22, 13. Isaiah prophesied of a day in which the people of Jerusalem would be attacked and the city besieged. Instead of mourning and repenting of their sins, the people would keep themselves distracted with fun, pleasure, and drunkenness. Wow, that sounds a lot like America. Rather than trusting God, the people had become cynical and fatalistic. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes that we believe is <clears throat> the uh, product of uh, Solomon, had a similar attitude. Uh, this is what uh, Ecclesiastes 8.15 says. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So Ecclesiastes, Solomon, we know he believes in God, so why does he have this attitude? And if you read Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, Solomon was somebody that just was willing to try every pleasure, but with his wisdom intact. And he basically said, it's all useless. It's all worthless. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. It's all useless. It's all empty. It's all worthless. He didn't seem to, that is Solomon, did not seem to have any hope in a resurrection, in an afterlife. So consider someone who had literally everything this life has to offer. And he still has his wisdom intact. And he says, it's, it's worthless. It's useless. If this life is all we have, then eventually you have to say, meh, what's it worth? Right? Okay. So there, the resurrection is essential. It's central to our hope as Christians. Right? Um, now, <clears throat> we also find this in the secular realm. Hundreds, hundreds of years after Isaiah when the golden age of democracy, philosophy, and culture came 
to an end in Athens. So uh, Athens, Greece, right? Not very far from Corinth, by the way. Um, you know, was a center of culture and philosophy. Um, you've heard of Plato. You've heard of Aristotle. You've heard of Socrates. It goes Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Um, Plato was Socrates' student. Aristotle was Plato's student. They wrote extensively. They've had a dramatic and extensive impact on Western culture and thought. And they were... Uh, they wrote and taught during this golden age of Greek philosophy and art. Um, but that declined uh, after, in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests, Alexander died and the kingdom was divided and eventually there was the nadir of the, the Greek culture and the Greek society, right? Um, uh, the Peloponnesian War was really the, the cause of the ultimate decline here. Well, in the wake of all of that, schools of thought like cynicism and skepticism abounded. Well, you know these words. We use these words, right? What's a cynic? A cynic is somebody that doesn't, they don't believe in anything, all right? Everything's useless. So it's, it kind of sounds a little bit like Solomon, right? He's not entirely a cynic because he doesn't give up. Cynics just basically give up, Right? A skeptic, what does a skeptic believe? A skeptic doubts everything, right? Eh, I don't know about that. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, there were actual schools of thought that arose in Greece uh, during the, uh, the second and third century uh, BC uh, that supported this, these ideas. Later, a Greco-Roman school of thought was established to support the eat, drink, and be merry ideal. It was called Epicureanism, okay? Um, and you might connect that idea, right, to, uh, to food, right? Well, Epicureanism is actually a philosophical view that believes in the pursuit of pleasure and the minimizing of pain. That's, that's their goal. They don't believe in any afterlife. So when the Apostle Paul spoke to the Areopagus um, on Mars Hill, and this is recorded in uh, Acts 17, if I remember correctly. I went over it with you a few weeks back. But he introduced this idea of the resurrection to them, and they immediately, it says, some of them immediately begin to turn him off and sneer, right, and disbelieve. Well, he was speaking to Stoics and Epicureans, and neither one of them believed in a bodily resurrection, but Epicure Epicureans believed that there was no afterlife whatsoever. So these are philosophical views, teachings, perspectives, cultural viewpoints that result from this attitude of this life is all there is. And we really, uh, we might not call it cynicism, skepticism, Epicureanism, but we see exactly that today. If you have no hope in a life beyond this life, then eventually everything is just, you know, useless. It's worthless. So by the way, a lot of people live today, it's obvious that they don't fear God and they don't realize that there will be a resurrection. They're not looking 
uh, with fear toward a, a time of judgment. They're not looking in hope toward any sort of eternal life. Uh, several years ago, there was a oh, popular music artist who coined the phrase YOLO. Do you remember that? Okay. Uh, I don't know. This is 2012, 13, 14, right around then. There's actually a hair salon that was established over here off of 78 at about that time. And I laughed because I thought, yeah, that's going to be dated pretty quick. And so YOLO, what does that stand for? It's an acronym. Joy is an acronym, right? Jesus, others, yourself. YOLO means you only live once. Yo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you only live once. <laughs> the scripture says it is appointed for every, everyone once to die and then comes judgment. So yeah, you only live down here once, but then you're judged, right? So um, the question in connection to this for you is, if there was no afterlife, how would you live this life? How would you handle it? How would you deal, as the young people used to say several years ago? And then he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So your ideology affects your morality, right? The way you think affects the way you behave. People can appear to be religious on the outside and come to church, um, you know, say the things that are expected among the group of people that you are around. But in the end, what you really think about things, okay, that is what you really believe, is going to determine how you behave. So, you know, you can look at uh, people's political positions today. I'm not going to get into arguments about those sorts of things, but um, there are people that I used to get along with, used to have relationships with, who are so now, they're so steeped in their political position that what I receive back from them, from them is hatred, right? Now, you might think, oh, well, you're, you're talking about, you know, people on this side of the political aisle or that side. No, I'm telling you people on both sides, right? People that are very close to me, some people that are not very close to me. Their thinking has changed their heart and how they want to treat other people, right? And we all just went through all of that. It really, ever since, I mean, it's before this, but I think all of this accelerated uh, during the Trump era, because he's just like a lightning rod. People love him or they hate him, and they you know come down on these two sides, and then they hate each other over this one dude. Who cares? Okay. And personally, I wish he would just go away. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of really good leaders out there. I, I wish that some of these folks that are out there causing so much division would just just quietly go away and let people that are going to promote. Uh, unity in our nation come together. But it's not just that. <clears throat> um, there is, you know, in the advent of the, the so-called uh, woke ideology, which really embraces a lot of different moral viewpoints. You can kind of cluster them all together. But, you know, people that would be uh, at one point in time would have called themselves woke. I don't think they like that term anymore because it's it's been taken by uh, the other side, and now used as a, a, a branding against them. But there are whole churches 
that have turned away from the biblical witness because they've started reading other books other than Scripture and have become, quote-unquote, woke. What I'm saying is your thinking affects your behavior, right? What are you willing to accept? You're willing to accept these things because of the way you think, right? So the Apostle Paul is saying here, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We think like others that we are surrounded by. So I had students in my youth ministry back in the 90s who went to different colleges. And it is like they were brainwashed by that school. Young people that were devoted believers are not. And I can show you where they went to school. And young people who were devoted believers who have hung on in spite of difficulty. And I can show you where they went to school. You need to surround yourself with people that are going to support your faith, not people that are going to tear you up all the time, right? And so um, your thinking will be strongly influenced and eventually changed by the people you continually surround yourself with. So I've seen people that, you know, they're not at church for a while and they're in the culture of their, uh, you know, their work environment. And that they start thinking like, talking like, and how do I know this? Because they're posting like these people, okay? You will become like those you surround yourself with. You will start thinking like those people. Example that I've used in the past, uh, an illustration, I will say, not really an example, is uh, my dog that I, I don't have a dog anymore because I don't want to take care of pets, (laughs) They're wonderful, but sometimes they trip you. Um, you know. <laughs> sometimes they keep you out of your house. You know, uh, we 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 have stories. We have stories. I like pets, but I'd rather you have them, and then I'll pet them when I come over to your house, right? And then you can feed them and clean up their poop and all that other stuff. But I do. I like pets. I don't dislike children or animals or any of that. I'm just really too selfish and lazy is what it amounts to. But I had a dog when I came to Garland and I've had several since then, but I had this dog when I first came to Garland, early 90s. And uh, he was a Basset Hound and Beagle mix. Now, Basset Hounds are, their temperament is just really low-key, right? If you want a smaller dog, right, that has a big dog temperament, right? It's a basset hound. They're just got the long floppy ears and, you know, long bodies and they're, they're kind of stout and they're a hound. And so when they bark, they don't bark. They don't go bark, bark. They go <laughs> But you mix it with a beagle and beagles are hyper. <laughs> right? And they're not like chihuahua hyper, but they're getting there. Okay. So he had kind of those, both of those features, and I liked him. And uh, I called my dog Elvis. And I had an apartment, first apartment that I had here in Garland. It was a townhouse, actually. And it had like a little outside sort of a, an area. And uh, so he could go out there. And yeah, he was a good dog. Had him the whole time that I was in the colony. And I brought him with me here. But right before I came to Garland... 
Um, I had a roommate. He had a, he had a duplex that had an extra room and I knew that I was going to be leaving the colony. And so I didn't want to get anything that was too terribly permanent. And so he let me rent a room from him and he had a little yard. It was a duplex, but he had a little yard at the back so I could have my dog. And he was a country boy, right? He said, Hey, and he did. He talked like that. He said, Hey, why don't you let me take your dog out to the country? And I think he was in, from Arkansas. He said, well, why don't you let me take your dog out to the country and, you know, he can play with all the other dogs over the weekend. I said, okay, sure. So he took Elvis with him. Elvis was my dog and he was well-behaved. And, you know, he was house-trained. And he did what he was supposed to do. He was a good dog. Elvis was gone for the weekend. And he ran around on the farm with all those country dogs. And when he came back, I didn't know that dog anymore. I was like, what happened to my dog? What did you do to my dog? My dog is crazy now. My dog doesn't want to stay inside anymore. He doesn't want to, he wants to run. He wants to leave, right? Well, long story short, I ended up uh, having him out in the little uh, yard area that I had uh, by my uh, townhouse and he disappeared. Never saw him again. Because he just got that, you know, desire to run in him and he decided that's what he needed to do. Well, I'm not saying anything here nor there about dogs. Dog, you know, they're going to be like dogs. The point is you're going to be like the dog you run with, period. That's why you should be in church. Be in a good church that preaches the gospel, not a woke church, right? That's preaching all sorts of other ideas that we won't get into tonight. Then he says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Okay, well, yeah. Understand, unbelief is sin. When you say, "Now nah, there's no resurrection. There's nothing after this. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Jesus was just a good teacher. That's a sin. That's not Jesus, okay? When you reinvent Jesus, you're sinning against who he really is. So if somebody says, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that's a sin. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus didn't really rise. No, that's a sin. Jesus rose. You can't make Jesus the way you want Jesus to be. Jesus wants to make you like him. It doesn't work the other way around, okay? So we need to get serious about our faith in Jesus. Be sober-minded and stop sinning, okay? Now, unbelief produces every other kind of sin. Because as he said earlier, right, when, uh, you know, we... He said, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. When we disconnect ourselves from those ideas that come from Scripture, then we start taking in other ideas. We start coming up with our own values. And this is why people become atheists, right? They may doubt. They may have sincere doubts. But in the end, it's what <clears throat> um, uh, Psalm 14, 1, and I also think, there's a companion psalm. I think it's Psalm 53, and the two psalms say the exact same thing. Psalm 14.1 says um, uh, that the, uh, the wicked man says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. Okay? Well, why would you say in your heart there is no God? We well, say in your heart there is no God because you don't want anybody to tell you what to do. You don't want anybody over you telling you that you need to behave differently. 
that you need to stop that and you need to start that. Now, you know, people have an idea of God as kind of a policeman or a rule giver, a lawmaker and so forth. Well, certainly God created everything. He established laws that everything operates in accordance with. When you step outside of those laws and you do things the way you want to do things instead of the way he has designed them, then you do that to your own detriment and your own harm. So when God says, hey, don't do this and do do this, he's not just saying it because he's being capricious and it will obey me because I said so, right? Now, moms, you might have said that when you were younger because you just didn't want to get into a big, long debate with your kids. Well, why? Because I said so. You, you don't even want to get into it. But you had reasons for why you told your kids to do what you told them to do. You had good reasons for it. You weren't just being capricious, okay? Now, a parent that is, and I'm sure there are some that, that have been, um, that are just responding to their children emotionally or you know, some sort of vindictiveness. Mom, can I go outside? No. Why? Because I said so, right? In this case, maybe it is payback, right? The kid made mom mad earlier in the day, so she's not gonna let him go outside. There's no real reason for it other than I'm just paying you back for it. Well, that's, that's not good parenting, but that's not what we're talking about either, okay? Um, we need to understand that the relationship that we have with God, where he says this is sin and this is not, is there for our benefit, okay? It's there for his glory. It's there for our good. So this command, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, is a command both for the sake of the people to whom it is made, who must give an answer to God for their lives, as we all must, and for the sake of the reputation of all Christians within a pagan world. Let's just think about that. There are just all sorts of people that call themselves Christians. And then they run around and do things that are definitely not very Christian, are they? Okay? I mean, you know, name your favorite sin. And... It's not just a matter of, hey, this is something bad for you. It's if you're claiming to be a believer or a follower of Jesus, it casts a shadow, right? As they like to say today, it throws shade on all Christians, okay? Here's another statement from Ecclesiastes. Um, and this would help us to understand this idea of being sober, being serious, Okay. You can enjoy humor and still be a serious person. I enjoy humor. I laugh at stuff, but I'm a pretty serious person. This is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes wrote. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, right? The house of mourning where someone has died. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Isn't that interesting? I think that might be the first reference to the blues. The blues, right? The blues, that's where uh, there is a sadness, a mournfulness there, and yet it makes the heart glad. It gives it this deep joy. Listen to the blues sometimes, right? It's that plaintive cry about, our, you know, our struggle here on earth. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad, the blues. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not a big fan of parties. I mean, I can go to a party, sure, but I don't stay very long. 
I just don't enjoy them. Okay? Now, I don't enjoy funerals either, so I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm right in the middle of all of this. Um, but the idea here that I'm trying to get across is that we need to be sober. We need to be serious. We need to realize an end is coming, right? You, you don't, you're not going to live on this life forever. And at the end, you're going to be judged. It is appointed for every person who wants to die and then comes judgment. That's a reason to be serious about your life, right? James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter, this is verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is what you do. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is what you think or what you feel. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, we distract ourselves with our endless entertainment and pleasure-seeking and uh, chemicals that we use to alter our perceptions and so forth. We need to be serious, and that may require us to enter into a time of repentance like that that uh, James spoke of here. And then he writes, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Yeah. Do you share the gospel with those who you come in contact with. Um, I usually look at whether people are interested. It's, it's probably, to be honest, it's probably easier for me than for you to gauge someone's interest because all I have to do is tell them what I do <laughs> and they are instantly interested or utterly uninterested. Oh, I'm pastor of a church. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, really? What church? I can just keep talking with them. So uh, I had to go and get my state inspection done on my truck. Um, and this is the first one I've had to get done because it was a new truck, but now it's gotten to that point. So I went to the place where I get my oil changes, five minute oil over here off of 78. And um, the guy that was there, I'm telling you what, man, he was good at his job. He was, as far as I could tell, he was the only guy there. There might have been one more guy, you know, down in the bowels, you know, where they unscrew everything and let the oil out or whatever. But he was like running around. And normally I've gone to that five-minute oil over there that just opened not too long ago. And um, there's just no cars there. I felt bad for them because there's one over here by Kroger and then there's that one over there. And so the reason that I went to that one is because usually there's no cars. Well, there was a car and he was changing the oil. And so I was like, uh, I had some time before lunch. So I pulled in. And he immediately came out, waited on me, and uh, you know said, hey, you pull up over there and so forth. But I was wearing one of these shirts. I have uh, this white one, I have a black one, and I have a red one. And he saw this on the shirt. And he says, is that that church in downtown Garland? I said, yeah. He said, are you the pastor? I said, I sure am. Well, I didn't get to talk to him very much, but I ended up inviting him to church and I gave him one of my cards, right? It's easier for me than it is for you, but you need to be available. Right? Make yourself available. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it's going to be normal for you to talk about it. Okay? It, you know, you talk about your grandkids, you talk about your kids, don't you? Because you have a relationship with them. If you don't, you probably don't talk about them. Or you talk bad about them. I don't know. <laughs> um, but he's saying... He's really saying a lot of things. I think there's some subtext here that these, 
the people that he's referring to that don't believe in the resurrection just don't really seem to fully embrace the Christian message. So they're not sharing it. If you don't really believe what you say you believe, you're not going to talk about it. It's not going to be something you share. But he's saying, I say this to your shame because all of us should be sharing the gospel. Okay. And, you know, there should be, this is very honestly, if you have a relationship with someone, they should recognize within a short period of time that you also have a relationship with God. You may not be able to go all the way with them. I don't, I don't think that you need to go into some heavy-duty sales pitch with people. I just don't like that, frankly. Um, I think these heavy-handed, um, you know, close the sale, close the deal types of approaches to the gospel push more people away than they draw in. So I've, um, it's been years and years, but when we very first started this church, I went to Mardi Gras a couple of times in New Orleans to share the gospel with a man uh, that actually was uh, prominent in helping us start this church originally. And uh, he really believed he was called to go out there and share the gospel where all of those revelers are. Now, uh, you know, there's, Mardi Gras is kind of spread all around, but it's the epicenter of it here in the States is um, on the French Quarter in New Orleans, all right? And it's crazy. I'm here to tell you, it's crazy, right? You really need to be called if you're going to go share the gospel out there because there are women flashing out there and, uh, you know, there are people doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing out there. And there are people out there that are genuine. They're not fake. They're really sharing the gospel. But there are people out there that are screaming at everybody and telling them they're going to hell. Let me just say this. There are people going to hell. But if I scream and point my finger and say you're going to hell, it doesn't win them into the kingdom. It doesn't make them want to hear the gospel. Right? Especially in our day and time, people are just not scared of God. They're not scared of judgment. And it's foolish that they're not, but they're not. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, he said, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we go to Revelation, we see that that's definitely the case. When God's judgment is falling on the earth and people are suffering because of it, you would think that would make them want to repent. No, they curse God. They try to hide from God. I see that happening today. I'm not chasing anybody down. I'm not, okay? I'm here. I love people. I'm here to share the gospel, but I'm not chasing people down. I'm not buttonholing them. I'm not trying to get them to, uh, to come over to my side and my viewpoint. I'm here to teach the truth and preach the truth and let you make up your mind. But you're accountable for everything you've heard. Not to me, but you will give an answer to Almighty God. We need to share with people, okay? One of the easiest ways to do that is just invite them to church, okay? Um, invite them if you have a you know Bible study that you go to, you know, Pastor Craig's Bible study here, the youth in the back, invite them, right? And then ask them, you take them out to lunch after church on Sunday and say, what'd you think? If you were paying attention, ask them what they thought, okay? And they'll tell you, let them tell you. It's just that easy. So that's what we should be about. All right. This might have seemed like a more random, uh, 
I guess, uh, desultory treatment. But honestly, if I go back and read the passage again, you're going to see this was very desultory, the way Paul just went from thing to thing to thing to thing. And you're like, what? <laughs> so I tried to tie it all together for you and help you understand that he's trying to make this argument for the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then people are going to live the way they want to live. Like in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Judges, there's some crazy stuff that people did in Judges, right, in that book. And there are two times prominently in Judges, it said, um, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. Yeah. There was no king, there was no one that they respected or responded to whose authority told them you have to behave this way. They didn't, they weren't following God as their king, which is what they were supposed to be doing. That's why there was no physical monarch in Israel at that time. God was their king. They were supposed to be listening to the prophet or the judge that delivered them and God was their king, but they didn't listen to God. And so everybody did what was right in his or her own eyes. That's exactly what's happening today. Okay. So I think that's the substance behind uh, this particular passage. So we'll return next week and uh, we'll start in verse 35. Thank you for joining us online. We appreciate it. And thank you guys for joining us here tonight.